Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and uh, there's Jerry over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know about kids. <laughs> Can I see a way right off the bat here? <laughs> I presumed you would. <laughs> All right, there's a couple of COAs I want to issue. One, we are not telling anyone how to parent their children. Indeed. Uh, And two, we realize that the whole concept of free-range parenting that will follow Mm -hmm. uh, comes from a place of extreme privilege. Uh, Yes, to be able to entertain the idea of free-range parenting comes from a place of extreme privilege. Okay. I, can I amend that, or should I wait until we talk about that part to kind of amend it? No, you can amend it. So, so to me, free-range parenting, having the freedom to free-range parent, is it, it, what I saw, it ties in with parenting that's already being done by people who might not have a choice. Are you saying that the—, the um, the the ability to choose whether you want a free-range parent or not is privileged? Yes. Okay, yes, agreed. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and again, we'll get into that, but um, we'll, we'll get into that at the end. But I just want to just go ahead and leave that off because it's um, a lot of privilege involved with being able to say, you know, that you want a free-range parent. Are you going to, are you going to <laughs> land one way or another on it? <laughs> on whether or not I support free-range parenting? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, Emily and I don't title it or say, hey, I think we should do this as a style. Uh But we, um, as it turns out, are sort of dabbling in free-range parenting a bit, as much as you can for a a three-and-a-half-year-old. So you're listening to your instincts? I've never read a parenting book, not knocking them. But I've never read one. We parent by instinct. Uh-huh. And uh, our daughter has always had a lot of room to free play and explore and figure stuff out on her own and fall down and get back up and all that all that stuff. Okay. I'm reading between the lines. You guys haven't decided yet. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So ready? Free range parenting? Go. Okay. So um, do you remember when we were kids, Chuck? Yeah. Back when mm-hmm. we used to hang out when we were kids? Mm-hmm. And we would go ride bikes together at, like, um, sunrise. We had no idea where we were going to go, but it might involve a swamp. could involve a glacier. Um, <laughs> there may have been, like, uh, uh, rail-riding hobos that we shared lunch with. Who knows what the day was going to bring, but we were up for all that and may or may not have engaged in any of that um, during that day. And then at the end of the day, Around sunset, maybe a little later, depending on whether it was summer or not, we would ride our bikes back home, say, see you tomorrow, go to our respective houses, um, and then talk the night away on our soup cans that were connected by um, a rope. And that was our childhood, right? We turned out okay. Sure. I uh, have have talked about my childhood some growing up, but, you know, I grew up in the woods, basically, Mm -hmm. on like a couple of acres of land with a creek and forest. Not in a subdivision, but on a street with like seven houses in the woods. Right. And my mother had a, um, we had this giant iron bell, probably about 18 inches across, on a mounted on a big, um, like a telephone pole. Yeah. 
kind of right beside our driveway. And she would at the, you know, when it was dinner time in the evening, she would go pull that bell <laughs> and you could hear it from like a mile away, This the bell tolling. And that's when Scott and I were like, all right, we you know, it's time to go eat. Um, after having been out all day long with zero supervision and I had a great mom, like she wasn't neglectful. Right. This is just how it was done. Yeah. Were you uh, a latchkey kid? Um, I know your mom was a teacher, but did she stay at home with you? She didn't go back to teaching. She she quit teaching to raise kids and then started up again when I was like, uh, I feel like eighth or ninth grade or something like that. Okay. Yeah. My mom took off until I was, I don't know, like six, seven, I guess like kinder. No, maybe she's still around in kindergarten. I guess about first grade when I was, yeah. when I started school and she's like, okay, I'm going back to nursing. Um, and then after that point, I was a latchkey kid for, like, the rest of my life. But I had, like, older sisters who would be home uh, around the time I would. and But I had, like, my own key to my house that was just a couple blocks away from my school. And I would walk myself or ride my bike myself. And then I would be home by myself if my sister was doing something else for a couple hours until either my mom or my dad showed up. Um, and I think I turned out pretty well, too. So, I don't know that I even had a house key ever. Well, you you guys probably didn't lock your doors if your mom rang a bell on the telephone pole to call you in for dinner. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think we locked our door. Okay, but but you were you had free range, literally, of your your house, your yard, the woods around you. Um, but here's a really big caveat from what I've seen. I think a lot of people who are like um, who who aren't familiar necessarily with free range parenting assume that we could have done anything we wanted. And gotten away with it because we were we had overly permissive parents. That's not that's not the case for me, and I would dare say that wasn't the case for you as well. That we actually had plenty of rules and structure. We were just also given a lot of freedom to to do things within that rules and structure, including geographic freedom. Right? For sure. Okay. Yeah. So that is what I thought all kids had up to this time. And I knew that there was like such things as piano and Mandarin lessons or um, Mandarin classes, that kind of stuff, like things that kids were taking more and more and they were really busy and stressed out and they had like like um, iPhones at age seven, that kind of thing. But I still thought that this happened and I was really shocked, about as shocked as I've ever been in researching an episode of Stuff You Should Know, to find that that is not the case. That not only does has this been kind of squeezed out by other activities, it's actually become c- criminalized behavior by society at large among the parents who are raising children today. I was blown away to find this out. I really legitimately didn't know. Yeah, I mean, and getting back to the activities, I, you know, I played some soccer in high school, and then I did like church sports, which there's not a lot of, I mean, I think we did like maybe one basketball practice a week. Um, so it wasn't like everyday practice and stuff like that. I never took lessons of any kind. Uh, like I taught myself guitar and all that stuff. So like I, I don't think I literally ever had a structured post-school activity in my life. Yeah. Did you say church sports? Yeah, I played church softball and basketball. Did like everybody win every game? No, it was actually fiercely competitive. Oh, okay. I'm just kidding. No, no, no. It was it was it was legit. Like we had a pretty good basketball team and a, and the league was pretty impressive too. Yeah. But um 
Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I never signed. I never had a single class. Like the idea of my mom having been like, "All right, I'm going to take you to your violin lesson, and then on the weekends we have gymnastics and uh, whatever else people are doing these days." Was just, it just, it, we didn't do that. She was just like, "Go play." Right. So, so there has been, and we'll talk about all the reasons why, but there has been a movement away from the kind of childhood we had, a very pronounced one. Um, if you if you look at you know culture as a pendulum sl- swinging one way or another, it has swung very far the opposite way to where kids' lives are structured um, down to the minute, where they have actual calendars and schedules that they have to keep up with because they have so many things going on, um, and. And there has come about in reaction to that uh, an antithesis, basically. And it is nothing more than letting kids grow up the way that you and I did. Um, and that, and it has become so novel in the face of, of the world and the, the culture that we have in raising kids in the United States now um, – that it has its own name. It's a movement. They have to go to court to defend themselves. It's so weird. But really, if you strip it down and look at it, all they're doing is raising their kids the way you and I and and Jerry, I'm sure, was was raised. Well, yeah, I mean, to a certain degree. Um, but the whole idea, and it's not just like, I want you to grow up the way I did. It's What it really is, is an argument that says, you know what? Kids will grow up healthier and happier. Uh, if they have freedom to play and they have freedom to fail and freedom to um, get in a playground scrap and to work it out with another kid on their own and figure things out for themselves, they will end up better people because of this. It's not, oh, I'm lazy or I have nostalgia for my childhood. It, it's uh, and, and, you know, there's a lot of research into this now or some research that says, no, what we're doing is, is trying to make better uh, future adults by not hovering over my child, scheduling them to death, and, um, you know, every time they fall, run over, pick themselves up, and, like, and, you know, rock them to sleep, you know, if they get a boo-boo. Right. So— <laughs> <laughs> I sound so judgy. I don't mean that. Well, let's let's just take a second. Let's take a break real quick and, like, collect right. ourselves, and then we'll come back and we'll really get into what free-range parenting is. Well, now, when you're on the road— Driving in your truck, why not learn a thing or two from Josh and Chuck? It's Stuff You Should Know. Okay, Chuck, so I think you demonstrated something that is, um, has made free-range parenting very unpalatable to a lot of, <laughs> a lot of parents who don't ra- raise their kids that way, and that it seems to be a reaction, um, almost an in-your-face to some people reaction or judgment of um, that helicopter-style parenting where you're always kind of around your kid. Their, um, their entire life is very structured and supervised, including playtime. Um, and that free-range parenting is meant to be a reaction to that. And in some ways, it is a reaction to that, but it also stands on its own. And if you step back and look at it and look at free-range parenting, not as a reaction to helicopter parenting, but as 
its own thing, is its own philosophy for how to raise a kid. And you strip away like the judginess and all that stuff. It, it holds up to me. And like you said, there's been a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot more study recently. But the whole thing really started back in uh, 2008. Um, by a journalist. It wasn't a child psychologist. It wasn't a, um, a child development psychologist. It wasn't a child development, child analyst psychologist. None of those things. I made that last one up, by the way. It was <laughs> uh, a journalist named Lenore Skenazi. Yeah, so she uh, is a New York mom, and in 2008, she uh, wrote a column for the New York Sun uh, called Why I Let My Nine-Year-Old Ride the Subway Alone. She was in a store one day in Manhattan, and her son had been badgering her to be able to ride the subway and bus back home by himself. And finally, one day, she said, all right, great, let's do this. Here's a subway map. Here's a subway card. Here's 20 bucks. Um, Here's some change for a payphone. Um, Have at it. The kid made it home, uh, and she said he was, quote, ecstatic with independence. What a great quote. Um, yeah, and like she got a lot of blowback from this from yeah. like the judgment goes both ways. I mean, there were people that said it was neglect and abuse for her to do this and let her kid ride the subway alone. Oh, oh, yes, yeah. If you had to divide the two sides up and start weighing which one was a little judgier, you would definitely your hand would be much lower holding um the helicopter parent side for sure. Um, yeah, if you're a free-range kid proponent or you raise your kids following that, there's a whole burden, a whole social burden that you have in addition to the burden of raising your kids that you have to put up with for sure. Yeah, and I, I should point out too real quick that it, it all depends on upon your kid too. I don't think there are any sweeping generalizations. Sure. Um, my daughter has always been very um, just instinctively kind of safe and smart about stuff. Yeah. Um, other kids in her class are just like little wild banshees. And I would probably be a lot more um, worried if she was the kind of kid who has an instinct to like jump out of a tree um, instead of like back down very slowly out of a tree. So right. it's all it's all different depending on your kid, you know. Or, or a kid who like can't seem to shake being totally fascinated with matches or knives or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah, I think that was a really good point. Like it's you shouldn't sweep or generalize. But I think that's an even larger point too. People should be left to raise their children um, how they see fit. Yeah. Given a certain amount of... Um, trust invested in the parents that the parent isn't going to harm the kid or let harm come to the kid because it's their parent, right? Right. Okay. So this whole thing started with Lenore Skenazy, and like you said, she got a lot of blowback, but she also got a really positive response too and actually parlayed the whole thing from that New York Sun um, article into a blog that she called Free Range Kids. So from what I understand, she coined the the term free-range kids and started writing about this stuff. And at first, a lot of it was just like, it's it's good. It's on its face. It's obvious that this is how you should raise a kid. You know, kids need play. They need to learn how to pick themselves back up when they fall down. Um, and not only that, you're doing a disservice to your kid when you pick them up after they fall down um, because they're not learning how to get back up themselves. Uh, and over time, it kind of went as people became more and more enamored with her philosophy or this whole free-range kids idea, um, more child psychologists started weighing in. And 
the the whole movement kind of took the shape. And they figured out that for a parent to kind of see the light as they as far as they they were concerned, they had to first change the mindset about what kind of world they were raising a kid in. Because if you're a free-range kid parent, um, you probably don't feel as threatened by the world in general as, say, a helicopter parent would, um, ounce for ounce. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, when, when, when parents have experimented with this, the, the changes that they've seen in their kids have been pretty striking, um, if anecdotal. Um, there's this one woman, uh, Dana Bloomberg. She's a school counselor in suburban Chicago. And we should also point out, it depends on where you live as well. If you live in a very safe suburb or way out in the country, it's a little different than uh, a kid like in the middle of the city or something like that. Yeah. But uh, she gave her kid a lot of free range um, starting in the second grade and got some neighborhood parents involved in letting their kids do it. And they said before you know it, they had this little, you know, little gang of kids kind of touring around the neighborhood on their own. And she's getting all these texts from these different parents um, saying like what a big change has happened Mm -hmm. Uh, in their own kid. uh, One parent even said it was life-changing for her daughter, gave her a new sense of confidence. And um, that's sort of what the free-range thing can look like. But like you were saying, it all comes down to assuaging a parent's fear, the biggest fear, which is my child uh, will get abducted or my child will get – uh, there will be a sexual predator to target my child, or heaven forbid, my child w- will get uh, kidnapped and murdered. Right, because you can understand, and it's really tough to fault somebody who doesn't want their kid wandering around by themselves because they're afraid that something really bad is going to happen to their kid. So, kind of the first step to um, to adopting like a free range kid attitude is to adjusting how you see the world. Um, and, and they think, they think that with, there, there are several things like if you, it's really fascinating to me. I love cultural changes, especially when we can point to different things, yeah. seemingly unrelated things that all kind of converge and has changed the world in ways you never think of. That seems to have happened to produce today's helicopter parents, or at least to produce the level of of fear, the climate of fear, that the world is an inherently dangerous, brutal, um, sadistic place that has, that where children have no call to be wandering around themselves. Um, that that is actually you can trace that back to a convergence of things that have happened starting in like the late seventies and early eighties, um, and in particular there were some high profile. Uh, child murder cases, basically, um, that all kind of took place between 1979 and 1981. And those really changed a lot of parents' minds about things. Yeah. um, In New York, uh, the very sad story of uh, a six-year-old Eaton Pats um, disappeared and was later found out to have been murdered. Um, John Walsh, very famously, his son Adam, um, he's the one that does all the TV shows now. I think he's on The Hunt on CNN now. Yeah. And really made this his life's work. But his son, Adam, disappeared uh, and died in 1981. Um, obviously, the Atlanta child murders um, from 79 to 81. And this all converged around the same time, like you were talking about, this these 
these strange things aligning. Um, cable news coming out. CNN was launched in 1980. Yep. So all of a sudden you have parents that are uh, getting this kind of constant flow of fear from the news about their children. Right, because so if, if a um, prior to cable news, 24-hour news, um, if something happened to a kid somewhere in, in some state, maybe if it were just particularly egregious or outrageous um, or everything was kind of set up in just the right way, it would capture the attention of the national media and you'd hear about it around the country. But that was really, really rare. And then second to that, the other place that you would hear about child abductions, child murder, murders, horrific like accidents that befell a child would be locally, right? Like on your local news that maybe... Yeah maybe expanded to a region, maybe the state, but it was pretty localized. And so if statistically something like that happened fairly rarely, you weren't going to hear about it very often. And so in your mind, it was a pretty rare thing and you weren't afraid of the world in general. But what a lot of commentators and a lot of, um, well, some of the people I ran across in research um, propose is that with cable news, that potential pool of horrible things that befell kids to talk about um, expanded to the entire nation, not just local, not just regional or even state, but the whole nation. So now all the bad things happening to all the kids around the nation was potential news fodder. And so when you were watching CNN, it seemed like every other story was about a kid who yeah. had been abducted and killed or sexually um, assaulted uh, or any number of horrible things. And there's really no way to put it other than that. That kind of stuff keeps people glued to their televisions. And so it's really in the best interest of news networks like CNN to feed people that because while you're glued to your television, you're also glued to the ads that they show too. And so from this model came a climate of fear that a lot of people point to is like, this is the source. And it's not just CNN. CNN gets pointed to because it was the one that started it all. That was Ted Turner who came up with this and started the first 24-hour cable news network. But all cable news is guilty of this and became guilty of it pretty quickly because that's the model of cable news. Um, and because cable news laid that foundation and showed like, oh, you got that kind of, you can really make some revenue, Nightly News tried its best to resist that kind of thing, but it kind of had to follow suit a little bit too. So it would become more sensational from the 80s onward as well. Not nearly anything like cable news, but compared to how it had been before, it was much more sensationalized because it was following that cable news model. And all that put together created the, the foundation of why people are just scared to death about the world because we, we think that it's way more dangerous than it actually is because the statistics are inflated by hearing about this stuff all the time. Yeah, and there's another couple of things that contributed that um, Skenazy has pointed out. Uh, one, we live in uh, what she dubs an expert society. So, again, on cable news or on social media, like everywhere you turn, there's another expert coming out with a new book they're trying to sell, uh, basically telling you how you're doing it wrong as a parent, <laughs> how you should do it. Um, and then the whole fact that we live in a very litigious society now. So what if uh, I want to free-range parent my kid and they go down and, and get their friend um, out of the house and they're riding bikes and one of them gets hurt? Like, are their parents going to sue me 
because my kid went and, and lured them into the into the mean streets. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that was another thing that happened, Chuck, in the 70s. The idea of negligence became really big, and there was what's called like a tort revolution to where yeah. you went from, well, you know, your, your kid was your kid didn't know your the, the, the other kid's arm was going to get broken, so you can't get sued for that, to, no, that was negligent, and we're going to allow that. And more and more case law expanded to, to to make people think like lawyers um, because of it too. Dude, when you were a kid, was I mean that must have been a thing because did you ever have the the lawsuit threat from another child? <laughs> yeah, that was such a thing. Like, yeah. yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna kick your butt or whatever. Like, oh yeah, well my dad's gonna sue you for all the money you got. That's right. <laughs> He's a dentist. <laughs> It's so funny, man, to think back in the 70s, these children threatening lawsuits on one another. Yeah, I've forgotten about that. For, like, ripping their shirt or something. I'll, oh, yeah. Any number of things could, could generate could a lawsuit. Could sue you. Threat. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in the end, Skenazy says, and this is, I think, a pretty uh, relevant quote. She said, all of this stuff combined uh, has convinced parents that they have to be both omniscient and omnipotent um, because of fear and monitor every single move that your kid makes. So uh, let's take a break, and we're going to come back and talk a little bit about the, the facts about whether or not your kids are really in danger out on the streets right after this. Well, now, when you're on the road, driving in your truck, why not learn a thing or two from Josh and Chuck? It's Stuff You Should Know. Stuff You Should Know. All right. All right, Chuck. So, um, like we were saying, to to not be just scared to death uh, because you're letting your kid say walk home from the park or something like that unsupervised, you you have to go through a change in mindset. Like you have to stop seeing uh, the world is a very very scary place. And sometimes statistics can be actually kind of comforting. So the free range kids movement has really, you know, made one of its um, foundational support polls and <laughs> you'd think I would actually be getting better at this all this time but no I love no, it no. sometimes to watch you stumble through something like that anyway they talk a lot about statistics and crime statistics related to kids in particular and when you look at them in the uh, cold hard light of the day um, it doesn't seem like it's a very dangerous world after all Right. If you look at the numbers, um, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children uh, says that just 1% of the 27,000 missing children cases are non-family abductions. And that also includes, like, friends and acquaintances. So if you're talking about literally a stranger targeting your child and plucking them off a playground, it is exceedingly rare that that happens. Yeah. Yeah. And that so one percent is non-family, right? Right, but that also doesn't even break down like if it's a friend of the, or an acquaintance of right. the family or something like that. So literal yeah. strangers snatching your kid, 
rarely, rarely, rarely happens. Yeah. So even even that, even including like friends of the family, um, somebody who's not a, a direct fam- family member, but known to the kid, a non-stranger, that's 270 kids that that happened to in 2017 out of 20, 27,000, I think, um, which is, that's awful for those kids that they were kidnapped, right? There's that's, that's another thing, too, is when you throw out statistics like this, it's really easy to be like, see, that was it. Um, but sure. you, you don't want to do that because to those 270 families, it, that, that's, that's all that matters. And that's really important to remember as well when we're kind of tossing out these statistics, too. Yeah, and not to make light of family abductions, which is, sure. you know, 91% of abductions. Uh, those are horrific and traumatic as well. Yeah. We're just talking about the bare bones of, like, the fear that if I let my kid go to a park, a stranger's going to pluck them. Out. Right, right. So, so, but, and so even that, even if you look at it, it's 27,000 out of all the kids in the United States in 2017, 27,000 of them were, went missing in 2017, and the vast majority of them ran away. So, if you're worried that your kid is going to get plucked by a stranger specifically out of a park somewhere because you let them go to the park, what the free range parenting people are saying. If you look at the statistics, the chances of that are so small that it's actually not worth limiting your kid's freedom of movement because of that outlier possibility. It just doesn't, it, it's just a disproportionate response to that risk is what they're saying. Right. Um, if you want to talk about the worst thing that you can imagine, which is um, a, a child murder uh, from 1980 to 2008, um, statistics about murders of children under five years old, uh, 63% of the time the parents are the ones who did it, um, followed by 23%, so that's 86% total, uh, 23% are male acquaintances, um, so like, you know, mom's boyfriend or something like that. Right. Uh, 7% are other relatives, so only 3% of all murders of young children are strangers. Right. So again, and again, dress <laughs> yeah. we're addressing the fear of strangers doing something to your child, not making light of these other statistics. And, and there are parents out there who are like, good, that's enough. That's the fact that it happens to one kid makes me want to protect my child and make sure, sure that they don't do that. Okay. The, you're the parent. You're, you're raising your kid in that, that way. I understand. Yeah. Um, but again, what the, what the free range kids people are saying is, like, like, is it really worth that? Like, what, what about that is, is, I mean, is it really worth that kind of a response? And we'll get to, we'll get to that because you could say like, if there were no negative aspects of, of completely ensconcing your kid in protection, then the free range kids advocates wouldn't have anything. They could be like, okay, well, whatever, that's what you're doing with your kid. But there's suspicions that they, that actually is detrimental to the development of a kid, protecting them from everything at all costs. And I think that's one of the big other um, foundational platform uh, post tenets of the free range kids thing. <laughs> <laughs> that one was for showing off. Uh, all right. So building on that um, – like you, like you were saying, like there, there, there has to be like in order to get a parent on board with a free range parenting lifestyle, it's not just I want to be lazy or I want to go back to my childhood. 
um, it's a parent who thinks there are actual benefits to doing so. Right, And right. that that outweighs the risk, like you were saying, of the 3% uh, chance or the 1% or the 0.5% chance that something's going to happen to my kid if they're on their own. Um, there is evidence, and it's growing and growing evidence, that all these efforts to schedule all these activities for your kid are overlooking one big fundamental element of raising a healthy, well-adjusted child that uh, seems to be getting lost more and more, which is something called free play. Um, The American Academy of Pediatrics has a report out that said that uh, free play promotes social I'm sorry, social? <laughs> I like it. It's the new, the new way of saying it. <laughs> uh, social, emotional, cognitive language, and self-regulation skills that build executive function and a pro-social brain. And play is fundamentally important for learning 21st century skills like problem solving, collaboration and creativity, uh, and executive functioning skills that are critical for adult success. Right, and they threw that last one in to be like, well, okay, maybe play's good, but it's not going to help them in life. And they're saying, yes, it will actually help them in life, and that by keeping them from playing, you're basically creating a little adult from from the nursery, which is interesting to me, Chuck, because prior to the 19th century, when you were a kid, starting around age five or something, you you had a job. If it wasn't around, like, your family's farm, maybe you were helping yeah. out with um, the wash that your mom took in. Who knows? But then, you like, there was no such thing as childhood, really. Um, and then we moved away from that, and we developed childhood. And now it seems like we're moving away from childhood now. And we're taking kids, and they're not, they're not working on the farm. We're making them little... CEOs and marketing directors and brand managers and stuff like that. But they're they're losing their childhood in that bargain, is I think what, what they're saying. And from play specifically, play helps, but it helps also like um, just in and of itself for its own sake. But it also helps eventually down the road. It's an investment that will pay off, I think, in terms that helicopter parents can understand. Yeah, th- there's another guy uh, named Peter Gray. He's a developmental psychologist. Um, he has a book called Free to Learn and founded a nonprofit, I believe, with, uh, yeah, Skenazy called Let Grow. Mm-hmm. Um, little play on words there. Yes. And he basically says that, you know, if you look back through human evolution, um, children, uh, their education was through play with their peers. And if you look at um, societies and cultures in the world today that, um, I mean, how would you classify these cultures? Uh, traditional societies? I'm not sure. Maybe, but they say that, that children of these cultures that still play and explore freely, um, if they're left to do that, they will do so into their teen years. Um, like that is their natural instinct, is to be among their peers Free playing. Right. But so, and so, like, I think one of the problems that helicopter parents have with the idea of play is that, like, it's, it's a waste of time. The kid could be learning, like, cello or, um, you know, doing math flashcards or, like, creating a better foundation for a better future for themselves. And that if they're not doing that, they're falling behind. And so what Peter Gray and some of his ilk are saying is, like, no, no, no. Play helps develop a child in ways that no other 
thing you could possibly come up with or supervise or get them to do can because this is what we've done all this time and this is how we've built society is letting little kids play and figure things out on their own. And he says that if there's a parent around, if it's supervised, if uh, there's a parent even within like eyesight or earshot or you know there's a a parent watching, it's going to be different. It has to be unsupervised, unstructured play so that the kids can be left to make up their own rules, can, can be taught by the group that, you know, actually, no, that's not really fair or it's not really cool to take the ball and go home because you aren't winning. Um, that's how you learn that stuff. And those are good things to learn. That makes you a more socially well-adjusted kid than um, probably learning cello is going to. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you can uh, try and teach your kid by uh, showing and by telling as much as you can as a parent, and that is all valuable. But nothing will teach a lesson to a kid like learning it through experience with their peers. Right. And, and like I remember myself, you know, when I was a kid, like the, the biggest lessons I learned were, were lessons that I learned uh, among my peer group, you know, like right. tough, hard lessons that a lot of parents, I think, try and even shield their kid from because it's tough stuff sometimes. But um, and, you know, you don't want your kid to suffer traumas and things like that. But uh, and not to sound like a parent from the 1950s, but that stuff does help build your child's character. And uh, I mean, I guess that sounds sort of old school. What it does is it helps them learn how to regulate their emotions and how to fit in with their peer group, which is in turn going to be eventually just society at large. Right. It's funny you say that that sounds kind of 50s because this whole idea of like free range kids is kind of based on that philosophy of Dr. Spock, who was like one of the first experts, one of the first child experts that America ever really paid attention to. And he wrote a book in 1946 called The Common Sense Book of Baby and Child. And he basically is saying all the stuff that free-range kids' parents say is, like, let your kid play. Let your kid, like, learn through their own... their own way of like exploring the world, like let them take risks, um, let them be themselves, trust your instincts as a parent. And so that's what free range parents seem to be kind of getting back to is like the Dr. Spock um, school of thought, Benjamin Spock, not um, the other Spock. Not live long and prosper Spock. Did he have a first name? Oh, I don't know, man. I didn't watch uh, Star Trek. I didn't either. Just lay it on us, million people who are going to send the email. <laughs> We're waiting. Uh, there's something called the internal-external locus of control scale. Um, it's, a, it's an odd name, but uh, this has um, been around since the 1960s. It's a psychological indicator scale. Uh, and these days, since the 1960s, there's been a big shift in this scale and how teens uh, report themselves and their internal control. And today, teens report very little internal control over their own lives and uh, Gray believes, and I think he's really onto something here, that uh, these high levels of anxiety and depression uh, among kids these days has a lot to do with that. And he thinks it's directly related to the decline in free play over the last, you know, 40 or 50 years. Right. Which I want to say, like, this, this is like one psychologist's opinion. It makes a lot of sense to me, and I'm sure it does to a lot of people, but it, there's, you know— 
this is not necessarily like like gospel truth or set in stone. It's sure. the the jury's still kind of out, but there is a lot of evidence out there that that does seem like overprotecting your kid can stunt them in um, emotionally or developmentally, and then letting them go be themselves and and learn things on their own and learn that they can pick themselves back up and still survive. And failure is not the worst thing in the world can actually help them develop. Um, th- this is, it's just like, we we routinely shoot holes in, in social psychology stuff all sure. the time and we do it gleefully. So I don't want to like go the opposite way and just be like, but this one's right because we agree with it. Yeah, um, totally. That's not necessarily the case. And I'm sure a lot of people disagree with it. But I I, I tend to kind of favor that that mentality, probably because that's how I was raised. Yeah, and it, like I said, it does sound like a, I'm from the 1950s to say that failure breeds character, but, it, you know, it really does. It's sort of a simplistic way to say it. But it, when you fail, you um, hopefully learn something and build on that, and that does build character. Right. So one literally. Of the, one of the things they call that is the um, dignity of risk, where you are showing your kid, I'm, I, I'm letting you go figure this out on your own. Um, and and another big um, misunderstanding with free-range parents is that, that you just go from, like, zero to walking, you know, taking the subway in New York um, at the flip of a switch. That's not how it works. You you slowly build your kid up for this, you know, the big thing that you write an article about. But there's, you know, dozens or scores or possibly hundreds of little little interactions that you're having to kind of make sure that your kid is up for this when they're finally when you decide they're finally ready to. Um, and it's not just like flipping a switch. It's very kind of thoughtful and protracted and um, planned, but not necessarily shared with the kid that it's planned, um, paying out of trust and, so that the kid can show you, yeah, I'm ready for this. I know what to do. I'm not just going to like ball up on the, on the ground in the subway and, and start crying until someone calls 911 and the cops come get me. Well, yeah, and I'm sure when she sent... Um her kid on on the subway home that very first time, it wasn't just like, all right, here's the stuff, see you later. I'm sure there was a, a very serious talk like, all right, dude, I trust you. I'm letting you do this. I know you know the way. We're going to give this a shot. Um, don't If I see you on the news in the middle of Times Square, like <laughs> you're going to be in big trouble. Right. Um, I'm sure there was a lot of thought and talk that went into that. And uh, you know what I'm saying? Yes, yeah, so totally. And, and kids get that stuff, you know? Yep, for sure. Kids are smarter than people give them credit for a lot of times, I think. Um, it's interesting when it comes to the law because it's such a new thing. Um, in Utah last year, in 2018, uh, it became the first state to pass what was called a free-range parenting law, where it basically was just sort of redefining what child neglect was. Uh, and in Utah, I thought it was going to go the other way when I was reading this, but um, – it actually went the way of uh, sort of encouraging uh, or being behind free-range parenting. Uh, the new definition, a parent cannot be accused of neglect just because their kid is going to a store by themselves that's down the street or playing outside alone or biking to school on their own or at home without a parent there um, if they're a minor, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I thought so too. Um but most free-range parents are like, well, we don't want to live to U- in Utah, so <laughs> hopefully our states will all come up with similar laws that, that decriminalize free-range parenting because in a lot of states, things like latchkey kids are illegal. Like, you can have your kid taken from you if they 
are a latchkey kid under a certain age. I think in Washington, you have to be 14 to be left at home alone. Like, you you could lose your kid. And so there's a real problem with trying free-range parenting because part of this um, helicopter parenting society is also helicopter villaging. But rather than picking up the phone and calling the parents whose kids you see wandering alone down the street like you used to would have done, now people just call, pick up the phone and call the cops. And then the cops respond and they take the kid to Child Protective Services and the parent has to go down and explain that they will never do this again and they're very, very sorry or else Child Protective Services will take their kid from them. Because most states rule on what's called the best interests of the child, which is totally subjective, is completely not based in any actual case law necessarily. It's just does the child protective services person think that that the uh, the kid is is smart enough to walk from the playground to the uh, house? No. Okay. Well, we're taking your kid, maybe permanently, and so it's it's really risky to raise your kid this way because people will call the cops if they see your kid walking down the street and real trouble. Your your parentship of your kid is in jeopardy at that moment which has got to be one of the worst things that could possibly happen to a parent. Yeah, and this is where kind of we get back to the place of like this is a um, privilege has a lot to do with this because when it comes to the law and children and child protective services, you are way more likely um, to get a visit um, from child protective services if you are poor um, or if you are a person of color or minority Um like they may write an article about you in the local magazine praising you if you're like a white suburban parent of middle or upper middle class right. for letting your kid free range around. But um, in the case of like Deborah Harrell in uh, 2014 in South Carolina, um, she wasn't like, oh, I want to be a free range parent. She's like, I am a working mom and I work at McDonald's. And I'm finishing a shift, and my nine-year-old daughter is playing at a park nearby until I'm done. And they sent her to jail for a night and took her daughter for two weeks away from her. Yeah, 17 days. Yeah, so it it is very much a case of privilege to even be allowed to do this without getting a visit from Child Protective Services. Right. So um, Skenazy and and some of the other free-range parents say— Right. This is why we need laws that are much more common sense and decriminalize this kind of behavior and put the trust back in parents to know that their kids are smart enough. Or if they think their kids aren't smart enough to be trusted with that kind of stuff, they wouldn't let them do that. Um, they argue that this would benefit everybody, whether no matter you know whether you're a minority or um, whatever um, socioeconomic status you have, uh, yeah. which is which is true. That's a pretty it's a pretty sensible. Um, it's sensible. But I think that that kind of underscores a larger problem, which is, you know, like some people don't have the choice to to get child care if the school suddenly cancels class. Like you just can't afford it. What are you going to do? And then your your work says, well, you can't bring them here. This is work, you know. Uh, yeah. What, what can you do? Hopefully you've raised your kid to a point where you can trust them to go play you know, next door at the playground or something like that. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to end up in trouble with with the authorities. So it's a sticky, sticky situation that we're in too. It is. And, you know, again, it depends on your kid. It depends on where you live. Like in my brother's neighborhood, uh, if I live there, I would let my kid go out and do what she wanted when she was like seven. 
it's just so safe. Right. And kids are everywhere on their own doing stuff, very much like it was when we were kids. At my house, I live next to a super scary, busy street. Like, I would never let her out of the front of my house. But even at three and a half, we let her go in the backyard by herself and do stuff all the time. Right. Um, I mean, just this past weekend, I uh, she was out in the backyard and with the dogs, and I went out about a half an hour later, and she was walking through the garden uh, with a watering can singing, <laughs> We Will Rock You. <laughs> and I was like, all right, everything's fine. But again, she's in my enclosed backyard. <laughs> I wasn't sweating it. I would, um, I would never just open the front door and be like, go have fun. Memorial Drive's right there. Right. Cars are going right. 60 miles an hour. But that's the point. It's all context, you know? Like, you would have had sure. to have worked up to that point. She would have had to have shown you that she was able to be trusted with that busy street, and maybe she'd be 16 before you would. But that's that's the point. It's all it's all con- it's context, you know? Yeah, and, you know, again, just do the best you can. It's hard. There are a, a thousand ways to do it, and everybody thinks their way is the right way. That's right. Also, just before we sign off, I want to say I didn't mean to pick on kids who take cello lessons. Cello is, by the <laughs> way, my favorite stringed instrument, which means it was the one that was easiest called the mind. That's why I kept bringing up the cello. So all yeah, of you man. out there learning cello, hats off to you because that's my fave string instrument. Yeah, what if uh, what if Yo-Yo Ma had just been free playing? <laughs> right. But I'll bet Yo-Yo Ma did free play. I'll bet he did both. And if he didn't, I'll bet he regrets it. (laughs) Uh, If you want to know more about free-range kids, we'll just go on the internet and start reading because there's a lot about it. Uh, And since I said that, oh, also, there's a pretty good uh, article on how stuff works you can read, too. Since I said that, it's time for listener mail. All right, I'm going to call this uh, desert flooding. Uh, Hey, guys, listen to the podcast this morning on desert survival. And I live here in Phoenix, Arizona, and have for 19 years. And the flash flood issue is real, even in Metro Phoenix. Um, they have a stupid motorist law here, uh, and that's capitalized and in quotes. Um, she said, and uh, she said, after and during your heavy rains, a lot of washes fill with running water. Uh, a lot of the washes have been paved. Uh, barriers will be put up when they flood, even if the water is only a few inches deep. But there is always someone who decides that their SUV or truck is hefty enough to get through. And their rescue is always on the nightly news oh, man. because they have to pay for it. They actually have to pay for the cost of their rescue. Huh. Uh, sometimes these daredevils don't fare too well. Um, actually, lives have been lost in less than a foot of moving water in a watch. Yeah, I believe that. I've heard six inches. Yeah. Uh, and she, Teresa Hinberry closes by saying this. I do so enjoy your podcast. <laughs> nice. Thank you, Teresa. We do so enjoy your emails, too. Yes, I like the way she put that. Yeah. Um, If you want to be like Teresa and impress us with your um, verbal or written dexterity, we love that kind of stuff. You can go to stuffyoushouldknow.com, and you can look us up on the social links. You can also send us a podcast like Teresa did to stuffpodcasts at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hold up. 